Nine-year-old Will shows me a magic trick, his fourth in succession, using rings and cards and dice and Rubik's cubes. Pick a card, Granddaddy, any card. Grant, at age five, sings an unending rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And Annie, weighing in at two and not to be overlooked by anyone, stuffs a pink-clad baby doll into my arms, whom I immediately rename Ralph. <laughs> Grant is tickled by this such that he can't control himself, and so he leaves off his former jingle and he begins to sing Baby Ralph to that classic emotive tomb, Baby Shark. <laughs> in just a moment, the three of them is, are in a conga line and they're dancing wildly around, around the dining room table going, Baby Ralph, do 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 do, Baby Ralph, do 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 do, Baby Ralph, do 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 do, Baby Ralph. The four of us, <laughs> believe it or not, as chaotic as it sounds, are engaged in the life of the mind. In fact, in fact, it is during those times of commonplace, give and take, uh, interaction with one another that the mind really grows. Now, one thing we've known now for almost a hundred years is that there is significant difference between the brain and the mind. We know, for instance, that the brain is a finite, is a, is a, is a finite organ. It is contained in the cranial cavity and it is stimulated by, by cognitive exercise. The mind, on the other hand, is expanded through the routine, uh, everyday interactions that we have with one another. And it expands significantly. As early as 1930, the eminent psychologist M.M. Skeels from Iowa State began doing a series of experiments uh, using children from the state hospital. These, uh, these, were, these were orphans. Uh, who had mental challenges. Skills studied them over a long period of time. And this is one of the things he discovered. A child that was adopted within four years would have a 50-point increase in IQ over those who were not adopted. And you say, well, Pat, that makes sense to me because they would have gotten all this stimulation. Well, Here's the part that's surprising. Every child he studied was adopted by a severely, mentally challenged mother. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about uh, uh, intensive tutoring at home. No, what we're talking about is the interaction between mother and child, the give and take between mother and child, the touch, the affection, the love, all those things resulted in an expansion of the mind that is nothing short of miraculous. 
The mind knows affection. The mind knows touch. The mind knows love. And the mind knows how much we need each other. I have to believe this is what Jesus had in mind, so to speak, when he consented to be baptized by John the Baptist and the muddy waters of the Jordan River. I mean, when Jesus is baptized by John, it sets off a scandal in the early church which persists for generations. I mean, why, why would the Son of God submit to baptism at the hands of a tough-talking, locust-eating, camel-hair-wearing, completely earthy human? Well, Jesus graphically, graphically illustrates to us why. Number one, he wants us to see how much we need to be in relationship with God and to be loved by God. Number two, he shows just as poignantly how much we need to be in relationship with one another and to be loved by one another. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Most of the folks who came into the boonies to be baptized by John traveled on foot an average of 80 miles. Jesus himself traveled something like 70 miles. That means we're talking about a 150-mile round trip. This was not just a spur of the moment, oh, wouldn't this be a nice Sunday afternoon jaunt. This was purposeful and it was sacrificial. People came to be baptized out of a sense of tremendous deep need. What's almost unfathomable is that Jesus gets in the serpentine line with them. Many in front of him, I imagine a good number behind him. All of those in this line leading down to the banks of the Jordan were disenchanted souls. Well, certainly they were disenchanted with the world that they had inherited, a world where imperial Rome became more and more dominant and uh, more and more authoritative, a world where Herod's sons were leading the country but not very well, in a rapacious, very greedy way. Their world was not good. But more than that, and you know this is true, they were disenchanted with themselves. They frankly looked at themselves as you and I look at ourselves and say, uh-oh, I am not what I was cracked up to be. I am not the woman or the man that God has meant for me to be. And those are the people in line to go down to the Jordan River. Jesus waits his turn, we imagine. He gets into the waters waist deep. And at that point, John confronts him and says, why would the Messiah of God, why would the Messiah of God be baptized by me? And Jesus gives him a rather terse answer. He says, let it be so for now in order that we might fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so for now so that we may fulfill all righteousness. Now I want us to step back from this a little bit and just think about what that looks like and what the meaning is. You know, righteousness in our common parlance has gotten pretty short shrift. 
I mean, we think of righteousness, we generally think of, oh, he's self-righteous. Uh, and that's, well, that's about as bad a moniker as you can give someone. It's worse even than renaming my granddaughter's baby Ralph. <clears throat> but to be called self-righteous means that you are a killjoy, you look down your nose at other people, um, you're, a, you're, a, you're a know-it-all, and everything is someone else's, someone else's fault. And so self-righteousness is not high on our list. But that's not where the biblical understanding of righteousness sits at all. Righteousness in the entire Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, is, is to be made acceptable to a holy God. To be made acceptable to a holy God. Uh-oh, now we really are in muddy waters because I know that I, on my own, am not acceptable to a holy God. Not even a little bit. Not even a tiny bit. And what both Testaments uh, shouted us as if through a megaphone is that righteousness is conferred by God as a compassionate, merciful, 100% gift. It's completely given to you and me. Unmerited. And there's no way to position ourselves to receive more of it or to make ourselves more attractive to God. It is his gift to us. No matter how much of a slide our life has been. Well, this is where it gets even more intriguing to me because Jesus had no need of this conferring of righteousness and yet he is waist deep in the water with the people. Waist deep. He actually is the centerpiece of God's righteousness. Yeah, if people want to know if, if, if God is really serious about making us righteous, all we have to do is look at his son who sacrifices all so that, so that we can come near to God and be with God and be in, in a loving relationship with God. There he is in the middle of the water. And what happens next is after Jesus comes up out of the water, after being submerged by John the Baptist, he comes out, you get the, you know, you can just see the water dripping off of him and onto his shoulders. He hears the voice, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And guess what? He's standing in the water with the others. Everyone in the water with him. Everyone in the water with him. Everyone on the bank trying to dry off. Everyone descending the bank and beginning to get in the water. Every single person in here who has had a drop of that baptismal water is God's child. You are God's child. You are the beloved. And you, with you, God is pleased beyond measure. Now, in my estimation, that is a miracle of the first order. I know how muddy my life is. Even in the last two days, I know how muddy my life is. But God says, I will make you beautiful, and I intend to make you beautiful. It's all my action. It's all grace. It's all mercy. Whoa. Now that's a, that really is a miracle. But guess what? That's not all the miracles. That's just the first miracle. The second miracle or the, first, or the second half of the miracle is just as astounding. It's just as astounding. Because if all we do 
is prance around with our little badge that I have been saved, well, we not only become amongst the self-righteous bunch, we also become almost nauseating. And we are in perpetual arrested development. No, God has more in mind for us than that. And the way we know is this. We know the Holy Spirit sweeps down out there in the boonies where Jesus is, is there being baptized, way out there on the, edge of, on the edge of Israel. But three years later, the Holy Spirit sweeps down again, this time in urban Israel, in Jerusalem, where the first believers in Jesus are situated but don't know what to do. In fact, they're fretful. They're frozen. They, they, um, they're kind of pitiful. And the Holy Spirit sweeps down this time, but not with water, but with fire. With fire. And ignites them in ways that they never imagined would happen to them. Oh my goodness. And the question is, on the, on the tip of our tongues, what do they do? What world-changing things do they do? What earth-shattering first steps do they make? You know, what happens? What happens? Well, in the same chapter, the second chapter of Acts, where this is reported, it tells us specifically what they do. Are you ready? You ready? Day by day, they met together in order to be in fellowship with one another. And they listened and learned to the word of God. And they broke bread together, and they prayed, and they worshiped together. And they shared their needs with one another so that everyone had what they, what they needed. And if you're saying big deal, those who experienced it say in the scripture, and all were an abject awe over what God was doing with them. What, that's the miracle? That's it? To come together and to learn the word of God? and to fellowship and enjoy each other's presence and to break bread and to pray and to work. That, that's it? To share what you have? That's the miracle. And if that's not enough, if you don't think God can do something with that, think again. Think about a mentally challenged mother <laughs> doing nothing more than cradling her baby and touching her baby and kissing her baby and loving her baby, and the baby's IQ ascending 50 points. That's right. See, there's one right there. The IQ's just kind of going right through the ceiling, right there. <laughs> Pinching your baby, by the way, does not have the same effect. I'm just telling you. But, uh, but, uh, but I want us to understand this, and I want to pause here for a minute. I want all of our I want all of our parents and all of our people to hear this directly from me. I know we often make it sound like life in Christ is heroic. Oh, you got to do this. And we invite you to do a lot of things. But I want you to pay attention to what the Spirit led the first believers in Jesus to do. Just be together. To make an opportunity to be in the community of Christ where you've been said. Come together in formal or informal ways, and learn from the Word of God. Come to worship. Sit back. Break the bread. Drink the wine. 
pray and, and, and be together and attend to each other's needs to the best that you can. You don't have to do something that it's extraordinary. The Spirit will work a miracle in you and me if we just are together. And that is a fact. And we will stand back in awe and wonder as to what God is doing with us. If he leads you to do something beyond that, you'll know. My experience with the Lord is he's not shy. <laughs> not even a little bit. So, I want us, again, to look at the first miracle. And that those, those who were baptized today... And those that have been baptized some time ago, you're beloved. You're God's child. You are. And you're altogether beautiful. And you are wondrous. You're a marvel in God's eyes. Let your children and your grandchildren grow up knowing that. And as we come together, we'll begin to see how creative we are. And that we really do have something to offer each other. And just to accentuate the point, no, this is not vodka. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> this is the last water I have from the River Jordan. I'm pouring it in the font. So all the children baptized today will be baptized in the River Jordan. Scott asked me if he could kick this back and go buy a lottery ticket. I just thought that was tacky, but... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know what to do with him. Uh, but um, anyway, we'll all be baptized. And as you come up to receive Holy Communion, or if you come by later, if you dip your hand in the water, you can re-anoint yourself with that water. But my hope is, my prayer all this year has been that we'll give ourselves over to this community where we've been set, this particular community where you and I have been set. It's not perfect. It's laughable at times. You've got some weird leaders. Um, but it's what we've been given. Give yourself over to it. And look at the miracle God will do. Because I can tell you right now, a mind is a terrible thing to waste.